You know, somewhat familiar with your work. I think I first heard you on Tinfoil Hat, I want to say. Um, yeah. And then I kind of checked out your website. I saw you've done some posts on Graham Hancock's website and stuff. And I've been super fascinated with ancient civilizations and sort of the alternative history of all of it for quite a while. Um, and your work's super interesting to me. What I've heard from it so far um at least uh could you just maybe give a brief overview of kind of like the basis of what you're what you're doing yeah sure so the basic premise that's supported by all the evidence that i am looking at is that the world's ancient myths scriptures and sacred stories from around the world from cultures on every single inhabited continent and island <laughs> are based on this common system, a worldwide system of celestial metaphor. So that in and of itself is already running up against conventional paradigms of history because you would not expect the same system to be in play in, let's say, Australia as in the Norse myths or in the myths of the Maya in the Americas, or in the nations of the North American nations and cultures and tribes that have stories and sacred traditions that vary from one coast to the other coast, but preserve this same pattern among their sacred stories that match up with stories from ancient Greece, for example. In fact, there were very early um, writings from like Catholic missionaries who came over and said, uh, this is unusual. I'm finding evidence of a myth that's just like the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. Mm. And so they would call it the Orpheus tradition among the Native American tribes. But really, you, you could almost say, when you look at the myths, the Native American stories preserve even more of the whole story than the Orpheus and Eurydice. There's more um, celestial detail inside the different variants that are found and preserved in North America. So around the world, same system in evidence based on specific constellations. And I'll show a little bit of what that means when I show some of the visuals because people have a hard time even grasping what I'm trying to say when I say that the the myths are based on the stars. What I mean is the characters, like Moses, is based on a specific constellation. And when he parts the Red Sea, or when he reaches out his staff and God parts the Red Sea, that episode is based on a specific region of the sky, and you can see it all playing out in the constellations themselves. So it is 
celestial metaphor, and it's the same patterns that crop up around the world, very distinctive patterns, not patterns that you would expect two different cultures to come up with independently. So that's the, the overall uh, you know, argument is that there was this ancient worldwide system, and it's already in place in the oldest stories of Mesopotamia that we found, or the oldest um, pyramid text from ancient Egypt, or the oldest Vedas from India. So there's three different cultures that are very ancient, that are acknowledged to be very ancient, and they're all using this system as a fully developed system, which argues that it didn't just evolve in one culture and then they brought it to each other. It was probably some even more ancient predecessor long before all these other cultures that somehow imparted this system to even the most ancient cultures that we today know of. So it, so when you say you're interested in ancient civilizations and ancient cultures, there's a lot of evidence that's archeological that says, Hey, this is really strange. Look at this pattern that we find here in Egypt. And then we find it here in the Americas and some conventional, uh, Conventional paradigms will get, will start to bristle at that already. Mm-hmm. But if, you know, but but there are like people like Graham Hancock or researchers like Graham Hancock or John Anthony West, the late great John Anthony West, mm-hmm. Robert Schock, um, our, uh, Robert Cassaro is another one who finds these patterns around the world that are very distinctive patterns that he'll find in artwork in Cambodia and artwork in South America. And so that's archaeological evidence. This body of evidence that's found in the myths stands alongside that and supports that. It's a whole nother area of evidence that supports the <laughs> conclusion that our conventional paradigm of history has some major flaws. It, our conventional paradigm does not explain this evidence. Hmm. And so it's in need of some kind of revision. It's like, I like to use a, like a Sherlock Holmes story or a Scooby-Doo story where the authorities think they have it all figured out, but there's some evidence lying around that just doesn't fit into the story that the, the, the authorities aren't very happy when Sherlock Holmes shows up or when Scooby-Doo and the gang show up because they're going to point out some evidence that doesn't fit inside the conventional explanation. And it turns out the explanation is totally different in some way, but that new explanation will incorporate the evidence that mm. is left out of the conventional. And that's what's going on. That is probably, um, the conventional paradigm has, leaves out so much evidence that it's clearly in need of radical revision right down to the root. Yep. And, and, and something else needs to take its place. Yeah, so it sounds like it's uh, further evidence for some type of pre-Diluvian or pre-kind of Great Flood uh, mother culture or or of some type, some sort of civilization, potentially global civilization that had some type of fall during the the Great Flood and s- survivors potentially disseminated information amongst, you know, other survivors that were maybe uh, less advanced. That- well, yeah, I think the catastrophe, I mean, I wouldn't say it was necessarily a flood. It could have been sure, flood. Yeah. It could have been, um, could have been some... Some argue about the comet 
impact, the younger Dreis impact theory. Robert Schock talks about a... uh, CMEs. Yeah, the the coronal mass ejections and solar events. Uh, Some kind of catastrophe probably plays a role. Um, What I find in the myths is pretty indisputable. Now, how we explain that, then we get into, you know, speculation. So was it a previous civilization? You know, I I prefer the word culture because we don't know what it was. Mm -hmm. Civilization implies living in cities. It could have been, we don't know what it was. But I, I would argue that probably the different pieces that we find around the world are the memories that were preserved by different people. And maybe they, because the catastrophe might have been so horrendous that people had to live underground for maybe several generations or hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. There's evidence of, you know, uh, and Robert Schock talks about this, a coronal mass ejection might make the ground radioactive for a long period of time. And there's evidence of underground type cities. It may have been that people had to live underground. And then, so what arose afterwards, you know, when you say, you know, there were different levels of maybe remembrance. I'm not sure anybody afterwards necessarily understood what these pieces meant. Hmm. But I'm pretty sure that the ancient cultures probably understood what they meant better than we do today. Because what what has then happened, a second t- catastrophe has come along, and someone's been going around trying to stamp out this ancient wisdom. Hmm. And that gets into more recent uh, events. But we can <laughs> we can get into that or yeah. not. But but like literalist interpretation of these ancient scriptures actually turns their under their in, their message on its head in okay. some cases. And like literalist Christianity, I'm not saying that the scriptures of the Bible are turning the message upside down. I'm saying that they can be understood in a metaphorical and esoteric way, or they can be taken literally. And when you take them literally, then it tends to change the message in a radical way. And so what we had was somewhere along the line, people started taking this literally. And then they also said, if you don't take it literally, you're wrong, bad, and must be converted. And then they went around stamping out all these other ancient, you know, traditions and cultures and saying, hey, you've got to get with our program, either not realizing or realizing and uh, but cynically stamping it out anyway, mm-hmm. that they're all actually based on the same system. I can show you that the stories in the Bible are based on this very same system that is underlying the stories of ancient Greece, the Norse myths, the stories from the Americas, the sacred traditions of the cultures of the Americas, of the islands of the Pacific, Asia, India, China, Japan, ancient you know, Australia, Africa. Very cool. Uh, so, so I think... I don't want to get too uh, far in the weeds before we get into your um, your visual presentation, but um, I got one more question for you before we, and then maybe we can just dive into that. Um, sure. Are, how familiar are you with uh, Randall Carlson? I would imagine you're pretty familiar with his work. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we know one another. <laughs> so he, um, I've seen a little bit of him talk about some of um, some of this type of stuff and mention the idea that like some of the stories in the Bible um, talked about celestial things but also they were like multi-layered are you do you get into that much where you know he shows that some of it if you write it out in Hebrew it's also like mathematical equations and 
it kind yeah, of seems definitely multi-layered. Okay. So these these myths are incredibly profound. So one thing I always like to stress is when I'm showing that the Bible, for instance, is based on celestial metaphor. A lot of times people who are accustomed to taking the Bible literally, and I used to take the Bible literally, will say, oh, are you saying that it's not true? Or, you know, it could be confused as arguing, oh, that means, are you, wait, you're saying that the story of Moses isn't true? I'm not saying it's not true. I'm saying it's not literal. I'm saying it, is contains, it contains profound truths, and those truths are conveyed through this language, this system that is incredibly ingenious and profound and whoever put this system together was able to operate on many layers at once so mm. it relates to the human body you know the the if you understand traditional chinese medicine you'll understand that the different planets relate to different the different organs you know if you have a liver issue then you're going to want to take this special herb or blend of herbs and medicines during these hours because of the planet that is connected to your liver, for instance. Or the story, you know, we'll talk a little bit maybe about Jacob's Ladder because of your name, Jacob. Perfect. And the story of Jacob's Ladder is definitely in the heavens, but uh, people like Santos Bonacci, if you've heard of Santos Bonacci, I have not. Um, he talks about it relating to the human body, the spinal cord, the the stone at the bottom of the spinal cord is the fused vertebrae down there of the coccyx area. And then there's the, the column that reaches up to heaven, mm -hmm. you know, the dome of heaven, which is in your skull, which contains your, you know, your pineal gland and your brain and all these other things. But this is a whole system of messages going up and down within the body. So this is operating on many levels at once whoever put this together it is i am just you know in awe at the profundity of this system and it it absolutely relates to ifs and mm. trauma and healing trauma that's what my most recent book is about mostly talking about the recovery of the self mm. it is definitely operating on that level in fact that can be shown to be one of its central purposes i i argue that is one of the central themes of the myths is the recovery of that the repair of that um, alienation from the self and it, if that was already being encoded into the myths at the beginning it's in the gilgamesh story the most ancient text that we have from mesopotamia the story of uh, the descent of inanna into the underworld if, it's a, if that's in the most ancient text that we have from the culture of ancient Sumer, for instance, that means that this issue of recovery of the self is a very, is an ancient problem mm. as well as a modern problem. It may be more of a problem in this trauma-inducing culture that we have. We can make our culture more <laughs> conducive to people being in touch with themselves or less yeah. conducive. And I think we actually have people who are trying to induce trauma and um, separate people and polarize people and that's going on so that's part of this story but it was a great question that you asked it led me off into a few different areas but it definitely incorporates psychology the human body the motions of the heavens uh, sacred geometry that randall talks about so mm -hmm. the, the short answer to your question is yes um, i'm 
you know, I've been on the Grand America show several times, and we actually had an event planned uh, for right now, actually, that was going to have Randall Carlson and me <laughs> both there. It's been postponed because basically the border is closed with Canada, so okay. all the attendees from Canada, including the two hosts of the Grand America show, wouldn't be able to go because the border keeps staying closed with Canada. Um, the Great Wall of Canada, I guess. They, <laughs> so, no. uh, long answer to your great question. No, thank you. That That's awesome. Um, I, uh, you know, real quick before we get into the thing, it, it just reminds me of, it makes me think of CPAC, which I thought, which I saw that you were a part of the, um, yeah, what is it? Cycles of Ancient Perception. Yeah, conference. It's a conference. Yeah. And it's in, it's Walter Cruttenden and yeah. the Binary Research Institute. So it's called the Conference on Procession yeah. and Ancient Knowledge. That's what it is, yeah. I, I love that stuff. I love uh, Walter's work. And uh, I remember when I first saw The Great Year, um, that little short documentary, I mm-hmm. was just blown away. And uh, a friend of mine and I actually sort of came up with a fractal version of the great year idea of like a nine year cycle for like a human lifetime so that we were mapping out our own life experiences on a nine year cycle and we're doing it with our friends. And we, we noticed a similar rhythm of the golden age to dark age kind of cycle in nine year intervals in, in like our own lifetimes. And so what you're talking about, just, it, it just seems like some of the most, um, I mean, it, it would make sense, but some of the most, you know, profound systems are these sort of fractal, you know, as above, so below. It works on the individual level of self-recovery, but also it seems like on a collective level, it seems like a lot of these myths are talking about that sort of cycle of time where we kind of forget who we are. We descend into this dark age of like lower consciousness you know, where we're more aware of just physical matter and we're at war and we're, you know, and then we kind of wake back up to our true nature and get into more subtle energies and all these things. Do you see that as well in the mythology? Do it, does it kind of have that theme of, of a collective, like long, like the, uh, like the yugas kind of this long cycle of falling asleep and waking back up kind of thing? Yeah. So that's a, that's a great, great point. So the whole, system of procession and we can talk about what procession is but without discussing it too deeply has to do with a division or a displacement or a dislocation and the you know this idea of the great return also incorporates that into the so the ancients clearly used the displacement the the kind of the um, it's like the universe uh, has a, a slippage in the gears. Mm. And so it is incorporated into the myths of Ragnarok of the Norse myths, for instance, is full of processional imagery and processional numbers, as is the imagery of the revelation at the, at the revelation of John that's included in the New Testament canon, for instance, has a lot of processional imagery. Um, a lot of kind of Big cataclysmic battles have to do with processional imagery. So there's this book that one one of the seminal books to really start me off on this course that 
is mentioned by Graham Hancock. So I, I learned about it from reading some of Graham Hancock's work. Mm. It's called Hamlet's Mill. You might have heard of Hamlet's yeah. Mill. And the whole idea of a mill stone that's grinding, but that has somehow come off its axis, they said, oh, this seems to have something to do with the heavens. The heavens turn like this millstone, but it seems like the axis has broken or something has broken in the axle so that the millstone is a little bit off. And it's it's grinding out the ages, but it's slipping a little bit. Mm. So that's why we have this processional slippage. Mm-hmm. Okay, We could get into models of the why... Why does this relate to the Binary Research Institute is because Walter Cruttenden posits that our sun may be a binary star, mm-hmm. and that may be the actual cause of precession. Because there's some evidence that shows that the conventional explanation of precession, which is a wobble in our axis, does, there's some evidence that says, wait a minute, if we were wobbling, then how come the planets aren't uh, being included in this procession, or how come Sirius doesn't seem to be included in this procession? So his argument is that there is a binary system. And in fact, now, more recently, in more recent decades, astronomers have discovered that something like 85% of the stars that we found are at least binary and sometimes triple, quadruple, some kind of multiple. So why would our sun just be a solo? You know, that that's... Anyway, so, um, but Hamlet's Mill... To get back to your original excellent question, talks about this as like we're inside this vast ruin. They use these beautiful imagery, this vast ruin of some ancient construction, some echoing but now broken structure that they call it an implex. It's like a giant matrix, but it's all connected. And they say it it seemed to have included number. It seemed to have included music. It seemed to have included myth. It seemed to have included all these ideas. They're all, they had this vision of everything being related on all these different levels. And they, uh, it's it somehow, all we have left is fragments. And the, and the authors of Hamlet's Mill say, the dust of centuries was already thick upon the ruins of this ancient construction by the time the ancient Greeks came onto the scene. Hmm. It was already really ancient. So they talk in kind of these sweeping metaphors like that. Unfortunately, I'll just say quickly, Hamlet's Mill, while they, it was written in 1969, they do a great job of seeing that, they're, that we're inside this ruin. They don't do a great job of giving you a coherent understanding of this ruin. And that really set me off to where I became obsessed with figuring out some more of the, the pieces of it. And one of the pieces that they missed was they, they clearly were not using the best outlines for the constellations. And so they weren't able, while they could tell that some myths seemed to match up with celestial clues, most of the time they just defaulted to the planets. Mm-hmm. They didn't realize that these different gods actually relate to specific constellations, but they didn't know how to look at the constellations the right way. That's a whole nother story. but So their book is actually confusing and frustrating in a lot of ways, but it really like piqued my interest and got me obsessed, and I started digging further and further. And in fact, that's what, the more I dug, the more I realized, oh no, it appears the Bible is also based on all this, because I was taking the Bible literally. You know, I was sure. quite happy to see, I was quite happy to see them 
tying Greek myths or Norse myths into the stars. But whenever they said, oh, and it looks like the Samson story, or it looks like the Revelation, this Revelation episode, I would say, oh, no, you can't be right about that. But the more I kind of pulled on that thread, the more I realized not just the Samson story, but everything from the book of Genesis through the book of Revelation and everything in between has celestial foundations to it. So it was a big paradigm shift for you then, it sounds like. Major. <laughs> I'm yeah. still going through a paradigm shift. <laughs> Feels like we all are right now. That's true. <laughs> um, cool. Well, I think that's a good place to kind of dive into your the stuff you have prepared. And just for people who are listening, we're going to have video to this. So strongly suggest you hop on. I'll put this on YouTube. I'll probably have it other places and check out the video version because I think it'll be well worth it. Also, I'm going to try to put some of this stuff in the show notes because I realize not a lot of people are familiar with everything we're talking about because we're obviously both interested in a lot of this stuff. So uh, there's plenty of things here that aren't really getting described and, you know, hopefully people will kind of check out some of these names we're dropping and further stuff so they can grasp this better but i know you're about to go into a presentation of kind of some of your work so that'll well yeah let me just show some some evidence to kind of try and make it a little bit more uh concrete or graspable of what sure kind of hazy topics that we're talking about um but yeah there's a lot of so i'm going to show you some things that i haven't i'm trying to not just recycle the same exact ones for people who have maybe followed lots of other okay. presentations that I've done. I'll try and use some different examples. But if you want to go back to the podcast archive on my website, you can see different previous ones that have video. So if you've got the yeah. video, are you rolling? Are we uh, are we recording? Yep, we should be good. Yep. All right. Can you see my screen yet? I cannot. Okay. Let's see here. Share screen. I'm hitting share screen. Oh, there we go. Start sharing desktop. And here we go. Do this. You should see it now. Okay, yep. So I'll, I'll start with a story. So I'm going to show some different evidence than I show. And this is because I know that you are an artist, right, Jacob? Mm -hmm. You you actually use phys the physical media to make artwork. So I thought I'd take you back to. One of my favorite ancient texts is the Odyssey. And this is from an illustration from a French version of the Odyssey from the 1600s. And it's showing young, the son of Odysseus, whose name is, you know, young Telemachus. Mm. Young Telemachus, uh, when I was little, I thought it was Telemachos because that's how it's spelled. But usually people say Telemachus. And there he is with Mentor the aged uh, mentor whose name, he's such a great mentor that now we call people mentors if they mm. are mentoring someone. But it's actually the goddess Athena has taken on the guise of mentor to give Telemachus some help because Telemachus has actually experienced what psychologists today might call attachment injury or the, the psychologist Paul Heller would probably call attachment into uh i'm not a psychologist so if if a actual psychologist or if paul heller says i'm using it wrong my apologies but what it is is telemachus has had to grow up without his father because odysseus ha is the last one to return from the trojan war he's been 
held prisoner on the island of Calypso, uh, presumably against his will, uh, with this immortal goddess who wants to sleep with him every night, and he's he's pining away on the beach, and uh, he can't get back to his rightful place. So he's been displaced, and actually there is processional imagery in that displacement. And back at home, while, while Odysseus isn't there, there's a swarm of suitors who want to marry his wife. And now that Telemachus is growing into manhood, although he's still very tentative and very unsure of himself, because he, he has, he's filled with self-doubt, poor Telemachus. He's always saying things like, oh, if my father were here, he would know what to do. Or, oh, you know, I'm so unlucky. I, was, I'm, I must be the unluckiest person in the world because my father has never come back from the Trojan War. So mentor says, Telemachus, pull yourself together. Anyway, he's starting to get to full manhood, and the suitors are saying, you know what, this pesky Telemachus is going to start causing problems because now eventually he's going to become strong enough to realize that we are eating all his household's food and depleting all his, uh, you know, all, all the labor of the fields is going to us, and eventually he's going to uh, get angry and throw us out. So let's deal with him and kill him. And then we, one of us can marry his mother, Penelope, because she's still so beautiful. So, um, and Odysseus isn't here. He's obviously never coming back. He was the king of Ithaca. So Mentor says, Telemachus, you know what? I, I've come to visit you. It is time for you to grow up and be a man. You need to do something instead of just whining all the time and feeling sorry for yourself. So, I won't go into the whole Odyssey, but just to set the stage here, he is in need. He is, he's not sure of himself. He's not comfortable of himself. He says, oh, my father, he knows what to do in every situation. In fact, when Athena comes to visit him, she says, your father knows what to do in every situation. But he actually perceives, there's some lines that say, he perceives that this is a god or a goddess speaking to him. So that trait is actually very noticeable in Odysseus. He is attuned to the world of the gods. He's able to listen to the advice of the gods when he's about to step into a very dangerous situation or something. If he just blundered in, he would certainly fail. But a god or a goddess like Athena or Hermes will say, hold on, you don't want to go just traipsing up to Circe's house or you'll, you, you, won't, you won't survive. Here's what you need to do. And he listens. So being attuned to that higher realm or to the, the, the advice of the gods is a key differentiator for Odysseus versus the others who just kind of blunder into these situations. And Telemachus actually perceives, hmm, there may be something more to this stranger than meets the eye. And so, anyway, long story short, Athena, in the guise of mentor, says, why don't you go from Ithaca, there's his island of Ithaca, why don't you go down to Pylos? Why don't you sail down to Pylos? I'm going to show you where it is, right there, you can see Pylos. Mm -hmm. And why don't you take the advice of old Nestor? Nestor, uh, he, he was at the Trojan War, he knew your father, maybe he's heard some news of where Odysseus is. She's really just trying to give him some confidence. He needs to go, and then he's going to go across the, to Sparta. You can see Sparta. It says Sparty, uh, a little bit to the right of Pylos. And actually, if you go straight up, you'll see Tripoli. Uh, that must be where Sam Tripoli's from. <laughs> uh, he's actually, right, he says he's from Armenia, right? Yeah. Uh, yep. uh, but 
Polis, of course, means a city. So three cities, the three cities, Tripoli, there's, there's probably lots of ancient places that had three cities, Tripoli. And of course, you're in Minneapolis, which mm. is a city, probably uh, a Native American tribe or something like Minna, one of the Minna tribes that started with that mm-hmm. is probably what Minneapolis is from, but I'm not positive about that. I'm, I'm just going off a little bit about the geography, but there he's going down to Pylos and I'm going to zoom in. There's this beautiful port and it's described in the Odyssey. And the reason I'm talking about this is because only very recently there's this amazing, incredible discovery in the area of Pylos. And so there's the city of Pylos right next to this beach, and the Odyssey describes when he gets there, um, when when Telemachus and Mentor pull up in their ship with the 20 oars, uh, the, the people of Pylos are out on the beaches sacrificing bulls to Poseidon. But up in the uh, hills right up here, if you look up inside that yellow square that I've drawn, if you can see it up there, there's this place that was, there's these ruins this beautiful palace, and it's been called the Palace of Nestor, after the the king of Pylos in the Odyssey, Nestor, this hero from the from the Odyssey. And that palace of Nestor is is pretty amazing. But recently, very recently, a tomb was discovered in that area, right in this olive grove, right where I've circled with that red circle, an undiscovered, undisturbed tomb was recently discovered in 2015, a shaft grave, and this is it, that's it right there underneath that olive tree. Obviously, that olive tree isn't that ancient. It's a fairly young olive tree, but olive trees are very ancient-lived trees, you know, that some of them are 2,000 years old. And um, This shaft grave was undisturbed. A team from the University of Cincinnati, uh, John and Sharon Stalker, were leading, leading this excavation, discovered this undisturbed shaft grave, and this is a diagram of what they found. It actually contained a warrior who's judged to be about between 30, I think, 30 and 35 years old. He had something like 3,000, more than, well over 3,000 artifacts were in this grave. So he must have been a very uh, respected individual. There are some beautiful, uh, there's a mirror there, that thing that looks like a ping-pong paddle mm-hmm. is actually a mirror. Um, there's a full-on sword you can see, there's a ceremonial daggers, there's a boar's tusks, possibly from a helmet. And there was a, a beautiful seal so that, that depicted a griffin. There was many different seals, but one of them depicted a griffin. So at first they, uh, they named it the Tomb of the Griffin Warrior. But in 2017, this little piece of agate was... It was encrusted in in all this grime and in mineral deposits. It had been they 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 carbon dated this site. Some of the artifacts in there, or maybe some of the bones. I'm not sure, but they believe that this warrior was laid to rest in about 1,500 BC. So that's very ancient. 1,500 BC. That's a bit, you know obviously if we're past the year 2000, we're talking 3,500 years ago. So this stone has been lying there undisturbed under the ground. But when they cleaned it off, they showed the picture in November of 2017 for the first time to the world. So here's, here's what it looked like when they cleaned it off. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. The, the, Whoa. This is only 3.7 centimeters Whoa. across. And look at the detail 
on this carving. This is an agate, and so they call it the, the Pylos Combat Agate. Pylos, P-Y-L-O-S. Sometimes people pronounce it Pylos. Uh, I think in America we mostly say Pylos. But look at the detail. Look at the rib cage on the, the warrior up top. We'll go through each of these three uh three individuals in a moment, but I'm going to show you when this came out in 2017, I was hmm. astounded because it's based on the stars. It's based on patterns that I've already written about before 2017, but the history world was astonished because some of the detail in this is less than a tenth of a, um, uh, well, I don't want to say it wrong. I think a tenth of a millimeter, like the size of a human hair, some of these details are incredibly fine. Uh, I'm going to show you, I think I have in here uh, a little bit later, I compare it to a nickel, <laughs> you know, a U.S. nickel. But I had already written, these are some of my earlier books. Um, before this was even shown to the world, you can see I'd already been writing Star Myths of the World Volume 1, Star Myths of the mm. World Volume 2, 2015, 2016. Before this was even shown to the world, I'd already been talking about some of these patterns in the stars uh, lining up with other ancient artwork or other ancient texts. And then when this came out in 2017, immediately I could see this is based on the stars. And I've, uh, you know, I've contacted people in the academic world about it. That nobody seems to be super fascinated by that yet. But I'm going to show it to you because this shows this shows what I'm talking about when I say based on the stars. I'll, I'll show you what I mean. Perfect. Let me. Uh, oh, so the three individuals. Hopefully, I've got the nickel in here. I have to get out of the the thing if I don't and find it for. You. But the the three individuals, just so I can talk about them, I call this one the swordsman. You can see he's pretty much on top of the situation. He's about to basically deal a mortal blow to the person right underneath him. Mm -hmm. But look at his exaggerated posture. He's kind of got a really extended rear leg. He's got his weapon held up over his head. He's reaching forward with his other hand, grasping the helmet crest of this individual here, mm -hmm. who I call the spearman. You can see why, because he got a big spear right there. And I made him, uh, I outlined him in blue. And he's got this big shield. I don't know if that's the way the shield is supposed to be. Some people have told me, oh, uh, the shield isn't dented. That's a certain style of shield that they use. But it's a pretty big shield, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then down on the ground, and look at the detail of that. The fallen, I call him the fallen warrior there. Look, he's got like a kilt around his waist that's got hatching in it. And look at the musculature of his back and shoulders and his hair. Look at the rib cage of the swordsman. Um just some incredible detail. Let me see if I've got, I might have left out the nickel. Let me see if I've got a nickel in here. Yeah, I'd love to see that. got to see it with the nickel. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> I left it out of my, <laughs> I left it out of the slideshow somehow <laughs> uh, in my, in my uh, planning. I'm just going to find that. Uh, <laughs> yep. Now everyone's going to see all my files. <laughs> Edit this out. <laughs> where, <laughs> where is the nickel? I'm going to type in nickel. Oh, no. I can't find it. <laughs> um, definitely have it. Yeah, no worries. Oh, there we go. Right there, U.S. five-cent piece. So let's, oh, let's just, wow. just see where that is. Where is that nickel? It's called... I think if you hold command, it might show you. <laughs> Maybe not... Let's see if this is it. 
There we go. So anyway, I apologize for the unsmoothness of my transition no here, worries. but there we have. Look at the That's centimeter. That's unbelievable. There's a nickel. So go pull a nickel out of your pocket. This is from technology of 1997. Look <laughs> at the level of detail that we have. I mean, obviously, this is a mass-produced nickel. We're not talking about, but this is 3,500 years ago. Look at the detail they're putting into here. I mean, that is, it's 3.7 centimeters across for the whole Pylos combat agate. All that detail in there, these little feathers on the crest, the hair, the ringlets of hair. The, I mean, mm -hmm. it's amazing. Yep. So, uh, because you're an artist who works with physical media, I thought I would just share that with you. So now let me go back to where I was. Yes. Um, now that we have an appreciation for what we're talking about. So the historians, the, the, the archaeological team that found this said this should change our understanding of art and capabilities. It's probably Minoan in origin, Minoan or Mycenaean. Um, and it is extremely, extre I mean, some people have said, I wonder if they had some kind of advanced optics to be able to work on a scale that small. Because if you look at some of those details and then you realize how small they're, we're talking about, it would be hard to imagine doing that with the naked eye. But now let's see how it's related to the constellations. So this is, I'm just going to breeze through it a little bit fast because I've shown kind of the gist of this in many different ways before. I haven't shown it using the Pylos Combat Agate, although I did make a video about this. In 2017, when this was first shown, somebody, uh, a friend, uh, that I, somebody who was following me on Twitter, a, a, a Twitter acquaintance, let's say, mm -hmm. alerted me to this Pylos Combat Agate, and I was astonished. So thank you to the person who alerted me, like the day after it was released to the public. He said, he or she, I think it's he, said, you might be interested in this. Well, was I ever? <laughs> as soon as I saw that it was related to the stars, I wrote up like a whole scholarly article and submitted it to a couple of different scholarly journals, peer-reviewed scholarly journals, saying this is based on the stars. You might want to, um, you know, you might want to look at that angle of this. It's already amazing from an art history perspective, from a technology perspective, but you might also want to understand that this is related to all these other artistic conventions that are based on the stars around the world, and none of them wanted to publish it, so I just made a video. Uh, I just made a video showing the world, you know, some of this. So you can check out the video, but I'm going to show you, that is the constellation Hercules, an extremely important constellation. Let's look at some of the outlines of Hercules. He has a deep lunge posture. He is wielding a huge sword over his head with one arm. He's reaching forward with his other arm. He has a deep knee bend and uh, extended rear leg. And he's a very powerful figure. He is associated with the hero Hercules or Heracles. He's associated with a lot of other uh, mythical figures, including gods like the god thor is related to hercules that huge weapon can turn into lots of different weapons including a hammer like the hammer of thor but let's just see how that matches up with the swordsman in the pylos combat agate you can see this extended very deep lunge this posture is very distinctive i have seen it in hundreds of other pieces of ancient artwork around the world including from later artwork from Greece. Remember, this is very early. This is like 1500 BC. That's well before the classic 
time of Athens and Sparta that we learn about in like the classical Athenian period where there's a lot of those uh, red figure and black figure vases that mm. we still have. This is a thousand years before that. But that outline, I'm going to show you, he's got a sword over his head, he's got a deep lunge, he's got one arm reaching out and grasping, is related to the constellation Hercules. Here's a, mm. here's a piece of artwork that you can see in Munich. That's Zeus right there. We know it's Zeus because of the label that was put there by the artist or by somebody in the ancient times. Zeus is also associated with this constellation. Deep knee bend, powerful weapon held overhead with one hand. That happens to be a thunder, thunderbolt. Other arm reaching forward. This is Zeus fighting Typhon. Mm. And Typhon is actually associated with the constellation that's right underneath Hercules. Same as that spearman is associated with it. Typhon, you can see, has two legs that turn into snakes. Um, we'll take a look at that. But this is from 540 BC, much later than the Pylos Combat Agate. That's the constellation right underneath Hercules. That is the constellation called Ophiuchus. You can see Ophiuchus, the name itself means the serpent holder or the serpent bearer. Has these two serpent-like, uh, it's, it's, it's a constellation that's composed of a central kind of tombstone shape or obelisk or gate or portal shape in the center and then two parallel serpentine lines on either side and Ophiuchus you can see how that could be Typhon remember Typhon has two serpents for legs if you think of the Starbucks symbol with the two fish tails coming mm. up on either side is based on that same constellation <laughs> now Ophiuchus Almost invariably, if Ophiuchus plays a warrior in, uh, or a god, that character will be associated with a spear, just like in this Pylos combat agate. One of the reasons, oh, well, there's a shield shape right there yep. in the, but the spear in this case seems to be going across that way. Yep. Right? But Ophiuchus could also be envisioned as having a spear going down this way. Mm. And here's a picture of the Archangel Michael, mm. Michael the Archangel. And Archangel Michael is definitely associated with Ophiuchus. You can see he's often depicted carrying a spear, and mm. he's usually defeated vanquishing the great dragon in Revelation 12 that he's trampling underfoot. And you can see that under the feet of Ophiuchus, you see that constellation down there that the spear is going into is Scorpio. That's Scorpio. Mm. I draw it usually with many heads like that because that's how Scorpio often is a dragon with many heads or a serpent with many heads, like the Hydra. Um, but we, we know that I can give you lots of clues to show you that Michael is associated with Ophiuchus, and Michael has a spear. Uh, he's got wings, but he's also carrying... Oh, by the way, this is from the 1400s, this is a painting of Michael the Archangel, but he'll often be depicted standing on the dragon like this. Sometimes the dragon has many heads, sometimes not. Often the dragon will be pulling down on one end of the balances or scales that are in his hand. You see the scales right there? Yep. So that's another clue that Ophiuchus is associated with Archangel Michael, because Archangel Michael is not only just standing on a dragon, which Ophiuchus is standing on Scorpio, but Ophiuchus is right next to a constellation 
that is known as Libra. Whoops, I pressed the button one too many times, but that's Libra is the scales or the balances. And so you see how he's holding the scales in his hand. That's pretty clear proof that Michael the Archangel is associated with Ophiuchus. Michael obviously is associated with having a spear, but that's why I showed it because the spearmen, these Ophiuchus figures throughout history and across cultures, I've even found it in the Maya artwork. I got a video about that are associated with holding a spear. In fact, sometimes they'll even have two spears. See, we could have, see how Ophiuchus could have two spears? Yep. And there's a figure in the Iliad, the Iliad before the Odyssey. Uh, the Iliad talks about the Trojan War and the greatest hero from Troy. Do you know who it is? The greatest hero, not of the Greeks, that was Achilles, but the greatest, the, the greatest adversary of Achilles was, do you know? I don't. Okay, I'm just putting you on the spot, but um, it's Hector. Uh. So Hector is the doomed hero of Troy. He's this tragic figure because he knows that Achilles can actually defeat him. He can defeat everybody except Achilles. And he, he doesn't even really believe in the Trojan War, but he's there because of duty, because he doesn't want his, his city to get burned to the ground and his wife and son to be captured and made you know slaves of the greeks so he's fighting but he's actually disgusted at the whole trojan war because it's all about uh his younger brother paris uh, wanted to abduct helen the beautiful helen of troy um even though she was already married and that's what set off the whole trojan war in the in the legend but anyway hector is associated with ophiuchus and he is often described as carrying two spears. There it is. Down he leapt from his chariot. This is from the Iliad, chapter, uh, book 5, verses 568, 569. That's from uh, the translation by the, by the superlative Robert Fagels, the late Professor Robert Fagels of Princeton. I had the opportunity to meet him, actually. But um, a great translation of the Iliad. Also, sometimes... Hector is described as having a spear that has a ring on the end. See, I put a little yellow arrow. If you look up in the, at the top of that second spear, I put a little yellow arrow. You see that little oh, yep. ring mm -hmm. at the top? I'll just outline it in yellow. That little triangle, it's, sometimes it's thought of as the serpent's head uh, if Ophiuchus is carrying a serpent. But it could also be the ring on the end of a spear. Actually, we see this in myth. So here's a different part of the Iliad where it says, Hector, dear to Zeus, strode through the gates, clutching a thrusting lance, 11 forearms long. The bronze tip of the weapon shown before him ringed with a golden hoop to grip the shaft. Mm. So I would argue that this is all actually celestial clues. Um, but let's continue. Oh, and here's some more evidence. Here we have another figure who's associated with Hercules. You see the Hercules outline? Mm -hmm. Do you know who this figure might be? He's about to cut off the head of a giant with it's his David. Giant. That is David about to slay Goliath. This is from Peter Paul Rubens, one of the most important Baroque uh, Renaissance painters who lived in the early 1600s, hmm. probably when he painted this. Look at the outline of David. You see the similarities to the Hercules outline? Definitely. Yep. And the sword held overhead. And in fact, he's putting his foot on the head of Goliath, right? Look at right here, back to the star chart. You see the foot of 
Hercules yeah. and the head of Ophiuchus. Now, do you know what Goliath's main weapon was? Was it a he club? Usually, well, <laughs> it's a giant spear. His spear is described as being so huge, it's like the the length of a weaver's beam, and the, mm. the head of the spear is so heavy, you know, David couldn't even, you know, nobody could pick up the spear of Goliath. It, it's described in these gigantic terms. Well, because he's associated with Ophiuchus, and Ophiuchus characters carry a spear. So I'm just trying to show, using the Pylos combat agate, I could show this a million different ways, but I haven't actually really done it on a podcast with the Pylos combat agate. So you see how the spearman is, there's more details with the spearman actually that are associated with Ophiuchus. But let me show you another detail that shows, for sure, we're talking about celestial things here. Look at how the swordsman is grasping the crest mm -hmm. right there. You see that? Yep. It's interesting. Why is he doing that? Well, here we have a little better close-up of Hercules above Ophiuchus. There's a brilliant constellation. You can see it in the night sky right here. That's called Corona Borealis, the northern crown. So the northern crown is right in front of Hercules, and it plays an important role in a lot of myths. And it can show up as a necklace. It can show up as a crown. It can show up in all different forms. But Hercules, you see the outline. He's kind of reaching forward with one arm. You could actually envision that arm. You could envision one extra connecting line, and he yeah. could be grasping Corona Borealis. And actually, he does grasp Corona Borealis in a lot of myths. In fact, I'll show you. This is uh, artwork from later ancient Greece, where... Hercules is grasping. He's once again. He's got his sword over his head. He's got that same posture. He's got a square-shaped head, just like the constellation, mm -hmm. full beard. And in this case, he's grasping an arc-shaped bow. But in other Hercules artwork, he's even grasping a helmet crest, just like. Yeah. And I would argue that comes from the stars, just like this scene is clearly in invoking celestial imagery and i'll show you <laughs> for skeptics who say okay maybe that's a co uh, coincidence there's one more <laughs> one more piece of evidence look at this uh sword pommel that he's got sticking out from his waist this the swordsman that must be a scabbard of his sword or something but this is in the original artwork and if you look in this night sky you see the star chart you see a very bright star above hercules mm -hmm. Right there, that's the bright star, Vega. Vega is located in Lyra, the lyre, the lyre, like a harp, you know, musical instrument that's stringed instrument, which, by the way, you know, David was a famous uh, harpist, right? The David's uh, psalms or you know, he plays the lyre. Yeah. Uh, he, if you listen to Leonard Cohen, the song Hallelujah is all about you know, D David <laughs> found a secret chord. <laughs> Please the Lord. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So uh, that's because he's right next to Lyra, the lyre. Uh, Hercules figures will sometimes be associated with a stringed instrument, mm -hmm. like a harp or a lyre. So um, we've talked about the spearman, the swordsman. The fallen uh, warrior here is a little trickier, but we saw that the scorpion is often underfoot of Ophiuchus. Now, I would argue that this constellation has some kind of Scorpio characteristics, but really it's actually more 
associated, I would, if I had to, to say for sure, it's got more characteristics even of Sagittarius over here. And I'll show you that. I'll show you why I say that. You see, Sagittarius has this distinctive um, feather coming up from the top of his triangular head. You can kind of see above the head of Sagittarius. I'll show you what I mean. Um, this is a painting from the, I think the early 1500s. Sorry, the resolution, I got this off of Wikimedia Commons. The resolution isn't super high here, but can you tell what we're looking at? Yep, yep. Yeah, so that is Jacob's Ladder. Oh, 1600s. So this is, the painting is called Jacob's Dream. It's by Salvatore Rosa. 1615 to 1673. And Jacob's dream, I talked about it on Sam's show, Sam E's tinfoil hat that you mentioned. Jacob's dream definitely has celestial features to it. But look at how the artist has depicted Jacob. Is anything <laughs> familiar there? Look, yeah. There's, there's our fallen warrior from that. This is oh, wow. 1500 B.C., <laughs> and this is 1664. So do you think they're referencing that, or is it just about sh the shape of a constellation? You know, how does, it, how does it become so similar like that? This is a great question. <laughs> the answer is... I just wanted to pop in and thank you for listening and give you a couple ways you can help support Awake, Aware, Alive. Head over to jacobgossel.com. That's J-A-C-O-B-G-O-S-S-E-L.com. Scroll to the bottom of the page and click the Patreon button. There you can become a patron of Awake Aware Alive for as little as one buck a month, and you'll get extra goodies. There's also a PayPal and Venmo button where you could leave a one-time donation. Or there's an Amazon button. You click that, it takes you to what looks like a normal Amazon page. You bookmark it, buy anything you want through that link, and we get a very small cut with no extra charge to you. Last way to support the show is by leaving us a rating and a review on iTunes, preferably five stars, and a little blurb about what you think about the show. Lastly, if you don't want to do any of that, please just uh, listen, share it with a friend, share it with a family member, somebody who you think might uh, benefit from this information or think it's interesting. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. There's a mystery here. <laughs> I yeah. don't know. How does this get, so obviously this is an ancient system that is at the heart, well, I can show you that this is at the heart of all the ancient, all the ancient myths, including the stories in the Bible, are based on this system, and something of that system has obviously been preserved down through the art academies of Europe. Um, how that is, I don't know, but look at, there's no doubt that, so, but why? It's not just to preserve constellations. So well, anyway, there's, there's Sagittarius. I would argue that that distinctive plume above the head is the arm, the hand, in this case, sometimes envisioned as flopping over the head. Mm -hmm. Why, though? Because this is all conveying important, profound messages that we need. It's not just a mental exercise. It's not just a puzzle. This is related to the stars. That's the Milky Way right there. If you go back to the, if we, if we go back to the, let me go back to Jacob's Ladder, play again. 
Jacob's dream. We can see the similarities. Let's go back to the painting. Look at the clouds in between. This is identifying a specific region in the sky. Mm. Those clouds are identifying the brightest and widest part of the Milky Way galaxy. And that brightest and widest part, widest, brightest, is the galactic core. And that is in between the constellations of Sagittarius and Scorpio. They're basically at the base of it. And so you can see the similarities to those clouds to the Milky Way mm. in the heavens. Now I'm going to bring in the constellations. There's Sagittarius. There's Scorpio. There's Ophiuchus above Scorpio. There's Hercules with the sword or club over his head with Lyra the lyre behind. And there's the two birds, the two great birds of the Milky Way going up and down above. The, the great winged figures are the angels ascending and descending on the heavenly stair. This, is, this has to do with the, the connection to the higher self the connection to the invisible realm, the reconnection with the cosmos. This is this has to do with IFS and the self with a capital S, with trauma, with repairing trauma. Like I talked about Telemachus and his, his trauma that he had to repair, he had to reconnect with who he is. Odysseus has to get back to connect with who he is. He's kind of lost and isolated. He's, he's, he's not being a good husband to his wife, he's not being a good father to his son, he's not taking care of his people in Ithaca, and they're being basically pillaged and looted by these, you know, suitors who don't care about anybody but themselves. Um, it's about disconnection and reconnection, and this part of the Milky Way has to do with that reconnection. It actually has to do with the second birth and the reconnection with the self uh, happens right there at the galactic core. And let me see what I've got for us next. To, yeah, It has to do with, see, Jacob, if you know the story, he went to sleep. He was alienated. He was, he's actually a twin, right? Jacob and, you know who his twin is? I his don't, brother? off the top of my head. Jacob and Esau. He, he tricked his brother Esau out of his birthright for a bowl of porridge or pottage. Um, Esau was a burly hunter. He had very hairy arms. And this is very similar to the pattern of twins in the Gilgamesh story where Enkidu, Enkidu is described as being very hairy. He's the twin of Gilgamesh. The twin pattern actually has to do with not two different people, but reconnecting with your own self the higher self, the divine self, or the suppressed, buried self. So mm. Jacob himself in this story, is he, he's running for his life because Esau now <laughs> is very angry at him for tricking him out of his birthright. Uh, you can read the story in the book of Genesis. Um, but he's running away. He, he's asleep in the middle of the desert. He thinks he's all alone. He goes to sleep with his head on a rock, and he has his vision of the infinite the angels ascending and descending on the ladder, and he says, oh, surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. I'm actually connected to the infinite, but I didn't realize I was. Hmm. Even here, I'm actually connected to this invisible realm. 
and this has to do with for one thing it has to do with reconnecting with the self that's actually always there but most of the time we don't even know it so in my most recent book myth and trauma see i've been exploring this for a long time trying to understand what it could mean and i've been talking about the twins are not two different people it's our lower self and our higher self and when i started to hear some of the leading edge therapists such as dr gabor mate Mm -hmm. uh, dr richard schwartz whom you've interviewed uh dr lawrence howler i realized wow these healers and psychologists who are helping people with trauma who have discovered the importance of trauma they're cutting edge they're, they're, they're complaining that, you know, the medical school hasn't even realized the importance of trauma. They, you know, you, you're listening to them on podcasts saying, you know, were you ever taught about trauma in medical school? No, I wasn't. No, me neither. What's wrong with, what's wrong with our system that it doesn't even recognize how important trauma is? When I heard them explaining <laughs> trauma, I realized this is exactly what the myths are talking about. Mm-hmm. One of their primary purposes is the healing of trauma the recovery of the self and you can see it in the myths for sure and that's what my most recent book myth and trauma is talking about so i've got some quotes here's a quote from dr peter levine trauma is the most avoided ignored denied misunderstood and untreated cause of human suffering almost all of us have experienced some form of trauma In short, trauma is about loss of connection to ourselves, to our bodies, whoops, I blanked it out, to our families, to others, to people around us, and to the wider world, to the universe. Mm. Um, Let me just see, I'll just bring it back up, to the world around us. And so when you're you're disconnected from yourself, you'll be disconnected from all these other things as well. Here's another one. I've got a, a quote here from Dr. Gabo Mate. He says, here's how we get disconnected. The, important, the reason I put this up is the important part of this quotation for the purposes of this discussion is we will disconnect from ourself automatically, unwittingly, and unconsciously. You won't even know that you're doing it because it's a survival mechanism. It's actually uh, necessary to do. The, the, Dr. Schwartz talks about the self has to retreat to, to preserve its essence in a condition of severe trauma, but then the parts feel that they've been abandoned and betrayed by the self. And so that's, mm. but it's a survival, it's a necessary function, but then they don't trust the self anymore. And so recovering that trust in the self, the myths are talking about this over and over again. The, the self that has been buried, the God that has been sent down to the underworld and then ha- has to be brought back or everyone has to search for the, or the goddess. Sometimes it's a goddess that's sent down to the underworld. And one more quote. Uh, oh, this is also from Dr. Gabor Mate. He says, Trauma is not these terrible things that happen to people. What trauma actually is fundamentally is a disconnect from the self, a disconnect from the body, and a disconnect from the essential self. And so there's all these myths about a buried God. This is Osiris, mm-hmm. who has to go down to the underworld. There's 
Inanna. This is from one of the most ancient Sumerian texts, The Descent of Inanna. She goes down to the underworld. She's hung up on a hook for three days, and everyone has to mourn for her because we don't even realize that our self is gone. The myths are there to tell you, hey, you actually have to search for it. You have to work for it. It's always there. It's indestructible. But if you don't even know it's there, you don't have any interest in finding it, you can go your whole life never get back in touch with yourself. And that's where, here's one from Dr. Schwartz. We're all born with a self. It does not develop through stages or borrow strength and wisdom from the therapist. And it cannot be damaged. It can, however, be occluded or overwhelmed by parts. And this quote, I think, is so important. The one caveat in this process, the one warning that I'll give you is that it requires at least some willingness to find out if the self exists and some curiosity when experiencing the self. Mm. And we see that in the ancient myths. We have, we have texts where they're not in the biblical gospels, but in the Gnostic gospels where Jesus says, hey, I don't want you to be ignorant of yourself. So many don't even know their self. It's quite common for people to not even realize they have a self or that they've suppressed the self, or actually it's the defense mechanism. Dr. Mate talks about this a lot. People say, oh, I never had any trauma. Oh, I had a perfect, I had a great childhood because it's too painful for them to face the fact that at some point they felt betrayed or ashamed to such a degree that they now paper it over with, oh, no, no, I, I can't have trauma, well, but you have addiction. You know, Dr. Mate will say, if you have addiction, you had trauma. Yeah. And so people say, well, I have addiction, but I never had any trauma. And he says, well, you, the fact that you can't admit that you had trauma is a pretty good indication that there is something there, and he, and he finds it. Anyway, we don't even know that we've lost connection to the self. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's so cool that you tie this in because, I mean, it's just so unexpected, you would think, you know, I haven't heard anybody else that's talking about um, ancient civilization stuff bringing trauma into the equation. Um, so I'm really fascinated by that. But yeah, it's like this, the disconnection, I mean, perfect example of what I've experienced with this kind of journey of discovering my own trauma it's like the the way your parts adapt to trauma just become who you think you are like your personality is like an adaptation to various different ways that you were not uh, your needs weren't fulfilled you know and this can be subtle things or things that you might not remember it might not be some big crazy event like you know, your mom hits you or something. It could just be something very subtle, you know, like you came home from school one day and you expected your parent to be super happy that, that you were home and instead they were crabby with you or something. Because they were distracted. Maybe, you know, you don't even know. They weren't trying to see. This is in right. the, the, the myths of ancient India. This happens all the time where, uh, the you know, the father is performing a ritual where, He's very into the ritual, and he realizes if he makes a mistake, it's all going to be for nothing. And the son is coming up, you know, the five-year-old is coming up and saying, Dad, uh, da, da, da. And he says, go away, get out of here. It's, it's depicting exactly what you just said. And Dr. Mate will say over and over, we're not blaming our parents. Yeah. They did the best they could. 
they were under stress. Maybe they were traumatized. Who knows? They may not have even. They may have been taught by society. Oh, let the child cry it out in the crib, or oh, you know, spank the child this for this or whatever. You know, yep. uh, we're not blaming anyone here, but we're trying to understand so that we can reconnect with who we are. Because, like you said, the parts, and like Dr. Schwartz teaches, the parts are trying their best. But who would? Who would you rather have running your life? Who would you rather you, yourself, your essential self, who you really are, or a part who's not really, it's like the uh, myth of the, the, the Icar, uh, not Icarus, um, the son of Helios, uh, the sun god who steers the, uh, uh, or Phaeton, who can't steer the chariot. He's not capable of steering the chariot. But he pesters his dad until his dad lets him steer the chariot and he burns the earth and he crashes the sun and Zeus finally shoots him down with a thunderbolt because he's not capable of steering the chariot. Well, our parts are like that. Mm -hmm. We really want the self to be steering the chariot. And so I've got one, I'll show you one really clear example of this from, uh, I'll share my screen again. I stopped sharing, right? You're not seeing the screen? Correct. Yeah. Let me share this with you real quick because this might show how the myths can be very helpful, can be a great um, guide to us in this process of reconnecting with the self because they show this over and over. They show it in the Vedas of ancient India. They show it in the Bible. They show it over and over. So can you see? This, uh, mm-hmm. am I sharing my screen again? Yep, yep. This is the famous scene of, is one of my favorite episodes to talk about. This is the famous scene of Doubting Thomas. Mm-hmm. It's called The Incredulity of Thomas. By this, this depiction is by Caravaggio, who lived in the late 1500s, early 1600s. And Thomas is called Thomas the twin. Again, twins in ancient myth are not really two different people. It has to do with parts. Mm. <laughs> Thomas is doubting Thomas. He's like, hey, I'm not going to get burned. Let's not get burned. Let's not be too hasty here. <laughs> He's a protective man. I used to put their egoic mind, but I like Dr. Schwartz's uh, model so much we could say, Thomas is definitely a protective That's so cool. manager part. Well, who is his twin? Who is Jesus? The That's self. yourself. Mm. And how does Jesus, how does the self deal with this doubting part? Does he say, Thomas, every other disciple believed but you. What is your problem, Thomas? Hmm. Thomas, you suck. Get out of here. You don't deserve to be one of my disciples anymore. I, in fact, I'm going to obliterate you. No, that's not what he does. He has compassion on Thomas. He deals with Thomas with love and with compassion. And he says, come here, touch, come right, stop doubting. He, this is how you get back in touch. The Scriptures show the way you recover the self. You 
you have to have compassion on that part <laughs> and mm. say, I understand you've been burned. I understand why you're being protective. I understand, but I'm here now. Yeah. I, you know, the one that you didn't, you know, I, the self that you felt was lost, that you had to keep under wraps, that you had to bury, it's like the team, I like to use the uh, metaphor of like an NBA team or a basketball team that doesn't trust the coach and they lock him in the locker room. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're all trying to run the team themselves. They're all very talented, <laughs> but they don't trust their coach. If the coach was there, he could actually bring out the best in all the different players. But because they've, they've given up hope in the coach, they've locked him in the locker room, and they're all trying to run the team, but they really can't do it. They're all, <laughs> they're all doing it from their own egoic kind of... Uh, but the coach, if you can let him out, the buried coach, the buried self, can bring that whole team together and get all the parts to work in harmony, and that team can live up to its full potential. And that's what these myths are showing that over and over, the... The myth, the, the Arjun and Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita is almost the exact same pattern as doubting Thomas and Jesus. And Arjun is imminently capable of doing everything that is necessary. He's got all the weapons, he's got all the skills, he's got all the talents, but he just ends up doubting and wants to just sit down in the dust and say, I give up. And Krishna says, hold on, I'll steer the chariot, you just trust in me, and you need to do what's right without worrying about the outcome. Anyway, the, the, the myths show us this, this reconciliation with the self over and over and over again. So I'll stop sharing. Where's my stop that sharing? That is so cool. Wow. I mean, I can see how, like, from the amount of books that you've written, and I can tell you're just like a fountain, like it just keeps coming we're just getting just a taste of, I'm sure, the amount of research you've done on this stuff, right? I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, how do I stop sharing? Have I oh, stopped? Oh, it sharing? stopped, yep. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, sorry. I was I was listening to your question, but I was desperately <laughs> no. trying to stop sharing the screen. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I didn't, I wanted to show the evidence. Yeah. That, so, the evidence shows that the myths are based on the stars. So then the question is, well, what are they about? Well, they're metaphor. They're, but they're telling us profound truths. And so we could talk about how they do that. This disconnection and reconnection um, is, is seen over and over. But yeah, that, that, the, how do they show it? Well, it has to do with the stars rising up and sinking back down into the ground that the, the whole thing is like a language so i was just going to ask you yeah i would, that, sorry to interrupt you I, that's yeah. one of, one of the questions i had that kind of the whole time as we were listening that i wanted to ask was basically you know is there some way that these the actual stories in the the you know the individual stories kind of play out not only in the forms of the stars but in somehow in the movement you know like are these are the myths describing something about the passage of time as well as just the constellations themselves? Yeah, it's Does a great that make question. Sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. So what is what is going on has to do with the the rising up into the sky and then the sinking down into the earth. 
right? So if we think about the passage of the sun, it rises up in the east, it crosses the sky, it sinks down into the earth. Well, the stars do that as well. They rise up in the east, they cross the sky, they sink down into the earth. And it's because our earth is rotating towards the east. That's why the east coast is three hours ahead of the west coast here in the United States. But that celestial, all those celestial cycles were in this system imbued with esoteric meaning. In other words, it's like, I use the metaphor of the karate kid where, you know, waxing the car is not just waxing the car. (laughs) It has some deeper meaning that you don't understand at first, but then it helps you to grasp it in that same way that Mr. Miyagi helped Daniel grasp through this esoteric method. So the sinking... Oops, I hit my, my, hit my, uh, using too many hand gestures, I hit my microphone, hope that wasn't too loud, but the sinking down into the earth uh, from the heavenly realms actually has to do with, you would think it'd be like sinking down into death, right? Like which, which part would be life? You, You know, the, the upper world of the heavens or the underworld when the stars are sinking down into the west and then traveling you know, it's as if they're traveling underground to rise up again in the east. Well, that part where they're, quote-unquote, underground, we know they're not really underground, but they're on the other side of the earth. Yeah. Would that be life or death? You would think, oh, that must be, you know, they sunk down into the underworld, it must be death. Eh, wrong. Mm. <laughs> it's actually, they sunk down into, that's where we are. They sunk down into this mortal body and taken on the clay like a earth. fall it's, from grace kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And so we're in that condition. So what they're trying to teach us is that when we sink down into this body, we um, we actually have a indestructible self, just like we saw in that quotation from Dr. Schwartz. We're born with it. You didn't get it from a good environment as a child. That's one of the things he said was most astonishing to him as he found it. He was taught that you have to have this kind of very positive environment to develop these kinds of the strength of that he sees exhibited in the self and yet he finds it there already in everyone you're born with it it's like the divine self or the indestructible self but it's buried Hmm. it's buried and suppressed and so even as we sink down we've got this divine spark but we're encased in a body of clay earth and water just like the stars when they sink down, they go down into the lower elements of earth and water. When they're going across the sky, they're in the upper elements of air and fire. So when we sink down into this body, it's like that's the first birth when we take on a body. The second birth that's talked about in, like, you know, you hear about born again, but actually there are patterns where there are two mothers in many different myths from around the world. There's two mothers uh, that accompany Osiris. So the, the second birth is located there with Sagittarius, where I where I'm showing you that, that galactic core. So this whole lower part of the zodiac, I call it the lower, I should have a, I should have a zodiac wheel to show you, but basically... What I believe is going on with this system is the cycles of the year, the cycles of procession, the cycles of the stars moving throughout the year 
have to do with teaching this this concept. I could show it better with a zodiac wheel, but if you think about the year, you just mentioned at the beginning, you're up in Minnesota, it's getting towards fall. Yeah. It's getting colder. So, why is that? Well, because we're getting close to the equinox, September 22nd. That's when, right now, days are longer than nights here in the Northern Hemisphere, but not for long. Pretty soon, we're going to have that equal day and night, and then we're going to have a long period of time where nights are longer than days. And you can't go surfing at 5.30 a.m. anymore because it doesn't get light until 7.30. Whereas back in the middle of summer, you, you could go out at 5.30 in the morning and it's already light. And it's still light at 9 at night. So that crossing point where we go into the dark half of the year where darkness dominates over light. Sorry, I've got my dog is now running around. No um, go on, go on. Um, that is the lower half of the year. That corresponds to that sinking down into the lower realm. So that whole lower half of the year has to do with the being encased in the after the first birth. But then there's a turning point where after the lowest, the very lowest point on the wheel, days are getting shorter, 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 shorter until we get to the winter solstice. And then we have days start to get longer. They're still shorter than nights, but they're now turning back upwards. And it's like the whole year has turned and we have a turning point. Mm. That's the second birth. That So that's the recovery of the self. That's the, that's all these myths about the divine twin being born out of a rock or mm. um, at the lowest point of the year, right? When do we celebrate Christmas? At the basically, it's three nights after the night of the winter solstice because the sun basically hangs at that lowest point on December 21st, right around December 21st, and then it's it's a solstice because the sun stands still at that lowest point, and then when it finally turns mm -hmm. after three days, it starts to go back up. There's a new birth, and that's the midnight on December 24th. That's when, if you're in a, like in Hispanic cultures, they put the baby in the crib at midnight. It's usually one of the daughters in the household will put the baby in, you know, in the crutch, the manger scene. They'll put the baby in the crib at midnight on December 24th because that is the turning point. It's at the, when the sun is at its lowest point and it's, then it turns around. Midnight is when the sun is actually on the opposite side of the earth from where you are. It's at its lowest point under the earth in the underworld, under the rocks. So there's a long-winded answer, uh, but does that make sense, what it, they're doing? It does, yeah. Um, so that would be the moment of, like, the recovery of the self um, and kind of this new birth. So it works for the year, and I, we already kind of talked about this earlier, but I just kind of want to bring it up again because I'm really fascinated by it. You say there's seems to be evidence in probably a lot of these different mythologies that they were understood the procession of the equinox uh, and the processional year, the, the 20, whatever it is, 25,000 year cycle, roughly 26,000. Yeah. 25, um, nine. It depends on what constant of procession you use, but yeah. Um, so, th so that cycle um, 
you know, this these myths about the recovery of self and sort of this uh, descent and reawakening process on an individual level, do you get the feeling that some of these myths uh, also encapsulate that cycle on a collective level throughout this 26,000-ish year cycle? You, you get what I'm saying? And right. like, um, And say something like the book of revelations i could see how um um sort of the end of times and the you know the thinning of the veil that sort of thing could be on an individual level but you could also look at it as like the reason why i bring this up is i hear people saying right now that oh this is the end of times or this is the armageddon um and i think sometimes i wonder well are we kind of getting to that point where we're starting to we're waking up from this slumber that we've been in on a collective level you know this descent through the dark age of humanity and we're kind of starting to wake up uh, back to you know make this uh, transition back up towards the uh, golden age um yeah what do you think about that i don't know yeah no that's a great question so all the end of the world imagery i would argue is end of the age imagery and the end of the age has to do with a processional shift and when the the i could show you so 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 i would argue that it has to do with end of the world imagery is end of the age imagery and a new world gets established every time that the equinoxes move to a new set of constellations. So in the age of Taurus, Taurus is in, the, the sun is rising in the constellation Taurus on the spring equinox. And after the age of Taurus, we move to the age of Aries, where the sun is rising in Aries at the spring equinox, which means this can be a different constellation at the summer solstice, a different constellation at the... So every time those four goalposts or those four landmarks of the year get moved it's a whole new world it's a destruction of the old world and a creation of the next world it doesn't have to do with the end of the world a literal end of this world that we're all in it has to do with an end of a celestial age and those transitions have to do with disconnection and reconnection yeah i think the whole processional machinery has to do with reconnection with who you are. It's another way of showing. And for instance, in the Odyssey, so so you said, well, how many years is the whole processional cycle? Right. Well, one degree is at the current rate of procession understood to be about seventy-one point six years to just. And it's a delaying of the background of stars by one degree every 71.6 years. So if you round that up to 72 years, because it's a lot easier to use 72 in a myth than 71.6, mm-hmm. Osiris is slain by his brother Set and 72 henchmen. Osiris is slain by his brother. It's just like in The Lion King where Mustafa is killed by Scar, yeah. his brother, and it's, it's the exact same pattern as Hamlet. This is what Hamlet's Mill is talking about, even though the Lion King hadn't come out when Hamlet's Mill was written in 1969. They said, look, we've got a king. His, brother, his evil brother kills the king. And then the son, Hamlet, is filled with doubt 
and doesn't know what to do and, and has to make a choice. We see that in the Lion King where the, the rightful king has been killed by the evil brother and the son, Simba, has to, is filled with doubt. He kind of goes off into the wilderness. He doesn't know who he is. He has to figure out who he is and reconnect. Well, in the Osiris story, as told at least by Plutarch, it's 72 henchmen, and 72 is obviously a processional number if it's one degree every 72 years. And then we'll move, well, actually, the background of stars will delay if by one degree, if we've got 12 zodiac constellations, then 360 degrees divided by 12 means you've got roughly 30 degrees per. Mm. This is all, so 30 degrees times 72, that comes out to 2,160 years. So if you multiply that by 12, you get the full cycle. But anyway, yep. 2,160 is another processional number. And we'll find those kinds of ratios encoded in places like Teotihuacan in Mexico City. By the way, today is Mexico Independence Day. Nice. September 16th. Viva la independencia. <laughs> anyway, but in Mexico City, they have these... Um, uh, uh, they have these ratios on like what's called the avenue of the dead that incorporate the number 216 and half of 216 is 108 108 is found in myths around the world there's 108,000 bricks in a certain agni fire ceremony of ancient india there's 108 uh, there's 108 beads on a mala isn't there yeah and also, in a, if you watch the beginning of Bull Durham, I think they talk about that in the rosary. Oh. Uh, 108 beads in the rosary and 108 stitches on a baseball or something mm. like that. But in the story of Odysseus that we were talking about in the Odyssey, <laughs> how many suitors are displacing Odysseus from his house? Well, they actually give us a count in the Odyssey, and it adds up to 108 suitors. So this is... Why do I bring that up? Because I'm arguing that this cycle of procession has to do with displacement, dislocation. It's, at least on one level, it's about us being dislocated from who we are mm -hmm. and recovering the self. Yeah. But it also has to do with restoring justice and righteousness and things being out of kilter yeah. and having to be restored. And so what you're say, seeing and sensing when you say it feels like people are waking up, I would say, yeah, that's, I, I sh hope so. You know, I long for that. And I think that is actually happening because I think the gods work their way out through men and women. Hmm. And, and the, the men and women know when things are unjust and they, the, the, the myths show that resources are given by the gods. The olive tree is given by Athena. The riches under the earth belong to the god of the underworld, whose name the ancient Greeks didn't even want to say. But all those riches under the earth, they're gifts of the gods. Even the, the birth of the people into the nation are given by the gods. The goddess Artemis is present at the birth of every child. Now, if those resources are given to the nation by the gods, to the people, then if certain people are just taking those resources and hoarding them for themselves at the expense of everybody else, that's an injustice. That's yeah. a, and that's 
Um, and an imbalance. I mean, it just it's creates an imbalance. an imbalance. Yeah, it's like the myth of Midas, right? King Midas was so rich and so wealthy, and yet when the god, in most cases, it's described as the god Dionysus, says to him, "Hey, Midas, I'll give you anything. What do you want?" He says, "More gold." In fact, I want to turn everything to gold. Anything I touch, I have it turned to gold. And then he realized that that was actually a death sentence. But what was wrong with him that he had to have more? How insecure must he have been to want to turn everything to gold when he's already the king of Phrygia, the, you know, this wealthy king who presumably had just about everything he needed, but he still had some kind of a insecurity inside, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's showing that... Um, but then we have a different king who is asked, what do you want? And Solomon uh, was actually, it says in First uh, Kings, King Solomon was asked in a dream, the Lord comes to him and says, what do you want? And he says, I want wisdom. I feel like I need wisdom to help the people. I don't feel like I'm, you know, that's, so, um, so long story short, I think that the, the myths are about, you can have that wisdom by connecting to yourself because it's, that's how you get in touch with the, that's how you hear the voice of the gods. And, but there are people who want to inflict trauma in order to separate people from themselves and to polarize people because when, you're, when your parts are taking over, yep. you're actually not, you're like a, a a puppet. You you can be you can be made to react, right? Yeah. I mean, how many of us have said, "What what was I saying? Why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why did I act like that?" I felt like something took over me, and I said this really stupid thing, and then five minutes later, I'm like, hmm. "Why did I say that? Boy, I, it was a part, you know. It yeah. was an insecure part saying something." When we're when we're acting out of an insecure part, we're not acting from ourself. We're easily manipulated. We're easy, We're like a. You can push your buttons. You can push someone's buttons if you can get them to. Hmm. Right. Well, and it seems like one of the things that the these myths encapsulate, you know, along the lines with that, um, you know, this idea of the disconnection is that they're that this reconnection is sort of a cyclical process, that there is some sort of a reckoning that comes to where things are balanced out again. Um, That sort of feels like what's happening right now, and it seems like there is some maybe reason to believe that we maybe, uh, I don't know if there's settled science on this, but it seems like there is some evidence to believe that we are transitioning from one age to the other right now, or or we did recently, or we're going to soon, right? From, what is it, Pisces to Aquarius? And That's right. I think That's there right. also yeah. is some evidence that those transitions, while they can be more of like a, um, you know, a celestial event, can also have an impact on human consciousness and on material things. So there could be potentially more natural disasters, you know, uh, raising of consciousness. Am I, are you, um, yeah, no, I don't that disagree resonate at with all. you. I don't disagree at all. I feel like I gave, I, <laughs> I gave kind of 
not the most clear answer, but what I'm trying to say is I think people are always awakening. Mm. And then I think also there are people who are trying to inflict trauma. And I think what may be happening right now is more people are awakening. Yeah. And the people who have been trying to uh, basically suppress this positive teaching for ages are getting more desperate to inflict trauma. Yeah. Um, and I don't discount that the actual motions of the heavens have definite impacts of us here on earth. If I am in a classroom that has low ceilings, you know, like many of the classrooms here in California, these hideous buildings, you know, that sixth graders are in with low ceilings and the desks are attached to the chair. So I can't even, you know, turn my body, you know, one way or the other. And, and I feel different than if I'm in a soaring vaulted ceilings with classical architecture and it's made with sacred geometry and it's, and it's. Uh, resonating the right way with the human body. And so if that has an impact on how I feel, I have no doubt that the motions of enormous bodies such as Jupiter and Saturn and Mars and our moon have impacts on us here on Earth. They certainly have impacts on the tides, right? That, yeah. That I'm going out and deciding when to surf. I think that those things, for sure, um, there are people who study that I think there are there are people who are using what I would call bad kung fu or bad karate, like the Cobra Kai school in the first movie, that know this stuff and are using it to bully or inflict trauma. Yeah, it's almost as if you know. Think about Dr. Schwartz. Think about Dr. Mate. Think about a really committed psychotherapist that you know who's trying to help people who knows how to really get down to the self, how to really talk to the parts. And then imagine if that person was malevolent, how bad they could screw people up if they really decided to use psychology to just inflict trauma on people, to really just malevolently hurt people. Could they do some damage? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's going on. So yeah. I think there's people who understand the impact of the motions of the stars and I think that and are using it for the wrong purposes too. Yeah, I agree with you, and I think that that stuff seems to be more. Um, it's like the more traumatized you are already, and the more you know unconscious that trauma is, the better those tactics work on you. I think absolutely, absolutely. I mean, if we're not witnessing tactics to divide and polarize society right now. I mean, I don't know what else, yeah. how else you can explain some of the things that are going on. They're certainly not going on for the narratives that we're being told they're going on for. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense at all, some of the things that we're seeing taking place. If, you know, if you didn't believe in conspiracy theories yeah. before 2020, so that, <laughs> then, you, then you should by now. That makes an interesting idea pop into my head is what, you know, can the mythology give us hope in a time like this? I mean, what is, you know, what can the myths tell us about what we're going through right now and what we might expect, you know, how to, how to get through this? You know, that Absolutely. might be a big question, but I mean. Absolutely. Well, that's what I talk about in Myth and Trauma. Okay. Because, uh, but but I'll tell you what I, I think how we can get through this is the, the getting in touch with yourself, that is how you get in touch with all your potential. 
And that is how you get in touch with the realm of the gods, however you understand that, the realm of inspiration. I mean, you're a musician. Where does, where does musical inspiration come from? Uh, I mean, I've had the experience of where I didn't, I was working on some puzzle, uh, you know, some myth that was puzzling me, and I thought about it, thought about it, I went to sleep, and the next morning, not right when I woke up, but like a f- within an hour of waking up, I realized that I knew the solution. And I'm, where did that come from? It just came from, it wasn't come from my conscious mind, because my conscious mind was asleep all night. Hmm. It came from my, you know, the part that my parts are holding down. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the parts had to take a break for it to come out. Okay, so if you can, if the people, and I think the people naturally know what's right and what's wrong, and they know when they're getting screwed, for lack of a better term, uh, by unjust systems. And, and the people in touch with the, the higher, and the gods working through the people, or the, the, the gods will keep working through the people until they work out their will their way. But the people who are opposing that want to polarize the people and divide the people. They want to divide the people among the populace. They want to divide you from yourself. They want to divide you from your family. They want to keep people from going and seeing their loved ones who are in the hospital. They're, I mean, they're, they're, it's... Yeah. Um, but how do you overcome that? Well, I think those people who are doing these things are like Midas. It's like, why do you have to... What's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. Like, they're hurting. They're divided themselves. So it's like they so they don't want to be playing that role, probably. They probably hate what they're doing. They have to get in touch with themselves. <laughs> it's like Midas had to get in touch with himself. He, he realized, and he actually repented and went back to Dionysus and said, I made a huge mistake. I've destroyed my own future. I've actually turned my daughter into gold. This, this greed of mine is destroying everything that I love. And in fact, it's going to destroy me too because I can't even have a, a bite of meat without it turning to gold on my fork. And I can't have a drink of wine without it turning to gold in my throat. I almost choked. Uh, I need you to undo this. And the gods had mercy and said, go bathe your head in this stream. It's all celestial again. It can be shown to be celestial. But it is telling us you know, this is what we have to get back in touch with who we are, and that is the solution. I know it sounds kind of, you know, but that's the solution. Is like, who do I want to be? I want to be, I actually want to be living out to my fullest potential in connection with myself, my true self, that capital S self, my essential self, that suppressed, buried self. And the the more that we can uh, get in touch with that, the more that will be the solution to the problem. Because for sure, the small minority who are inflicting this trauma on purpose, why do they have to use deception? They're using deception, Mm -hmm. right? They clearly have to use deception. Why? Because the people in their numbers are way more powerful. Yep are way more powerful. Mm-hmm. So that's the, the solution is the people have to wake up. Yep. 
and and that's the solution. And and the and the people who are doing bad things, if they would wake up, they would see, hey, this is, I'm I actually don't need eight hundred billion dollars, you know. I actually don't need that to be secure. You're never going to find security from external things. Yeah. Anyone who's anyone who's who's you know acting that psychopathically as some people are acting is because they're trying to assuage something that is missing inside. And our whole culture is basically turned into that. And it's because we've been disconnected from this ancient wisdom. Our whole culture is disconnected from our original instructions. So that's why we're <laughs> That's why we're pursuing the wrong. Uh, it's a, when you externalize the myths, the the solution becomes an external solution. Mm. Rather, the solution's already inside of you. Yeah. Right. The self is already there. You're born with it. It's indestructible. I think the that- parables of Jesus are like, hey, you're already living on the field that's got the treasure in it. <laughs> didn't even realize it. You're already rich. Well, you, you just didn't know it. I mean, that's one of the parables. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that excites me so much about, you know, people like you and, and work like this is uh, it sort of feels, I mean, it's always felt like the, you know, these ancient mysteries, the pyramids, it all has this, you know, just for me, this deep feeling like there's something extra about this stuff that we just don't understand, you know, and, and some people um, attribute these things to aliens and that's a different topic and I, I think there's some cool stuff there I'm open to any possibility but I think more than anything what fascinates me is just that there's some sort of extra like ancient uh, you can I have the sense that we lost something some sort of knowledge some sort of you know higher understanding higher way of being and perceiving reality and what's exciting about work like yours and other people in your kind of realm is it feels like we're starting to kind of, you know, just kind of get a little thread of like, okay, what was really going on here? Like we're starting to remember a little bit, you know, and that's exciting to me. And I'm just so pumped to see where all of this goes. And I would really, am definitely going to get more into your work and, um, you've got me wanting to just read mythology too at this point. Like it just sounds so cool. I mean, I've a very minimal knowledge of, of mythology in general, besides what I hear little bits of here and there. And so uh, one of the things I would like to uh, ask you before we're, we're done whenever that is, is, um, well, kind of, I, I thought of three little short little questions. One of them would be what book of yours would be a great place to start what piece of mythology would be a great place to start and uh i'm blanking on the third one so why not just start with those two (laughs) (laughs) okay well yeah thanks for saying saying what you just said i i think the myths i i say i think it's kind of like a filler phrase for me i'm convinced that the myths have the answers it's not not me. <laughs> yeah. My my books are just trying to point people to the myths, um, and the and the myths are pointing the way to yourself. So I'm not the teacher. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not the guru. Um, but I I do believe that the myths. I mean I'm beyond belief. It's co- deep conviction that the myths are profound. 
blessing given like this ancient <laughs> sorry knocked over my uh, no worries knocked over my microphone with my excited <laughs> gestures i love it they're this aristotle called them the ancient treasure mm. and they're like this precious inheritance that's been given to every culture on the planet so um so in answer to your question about like the best book of mine to start with well the most recent one myth and trauma is a great place to start um i'll, I'll just pull up the screen and show you a couple where's my picture of all my books real quick uh, well, I took out the picture of, so Myth and Trauma is 2020. I won't pull up the pictures. I'll just describe it. 2019 is the Ancient Worldwide System, which is over 900 pages and takes kind of a world tour of um, myths from Australia, myths from Africa, myths from ancient Egypt, myths mm -hmm. from ancient India. Um, and then that's Star Myths of the World, Volume 1. Volume 2 is all about the Greek myths. Volume three is Star Myths of the Bible. Volume four is the Norse myths. Wow. But I would I would say that myth and trauma is a great place to start. Um, another one that people like is called Astrotheology for Life. It's a little thinner. And instead of going culture by culture, it goes myth pattern by myth pattern. Mm. So we see these myth patterns such as a baby being cast adrift in the waters we see that myth pattern around the world moses is cast into the waters but so is a baby named karna in the myths of ancient india so is perseus is actually cast into the waters there's a baby in japan uh, a child of a god and a goddess who is cast into the waters there's baby maui is cast into the sea foam by his parents um, there's a king in ancient Mesopotamia, Sargon, who is described as being cast into the waters. So these patterns are found around the world. So in Astrotheology for Life, I go kind of pattern by pattern instead of culture by culture. So that, that's another good one that some people like to start with. So I would say myth and trauma is a great place to start just because it's the most recent. Yep. And it's got my most recent thinking. Um but there's a ton of stuff on my website. My blog has almost 1,300 posts at this point. Wow. I've got dozens of videos on my YouTube channel people can check out. And my thinking has evolved or my understanding of the myths has grown over the, over the years. So you can trace my own, my own progress by going back into the blog, you know, early days to today. I've, I've learned more. But um, I mean, it's a good question. I would, I would say start with the most recent one, and then Ancient Worldwide System is another great resource. Might be a good second one to go to. Um, but favorite ancient myths? I tell people that whatever myths really speak to you, mm. I think they are all valid. The myths and stories in the Bible are beautiful and full of truth. I don't discredit or put down the stories of the Bible at all. They're wonderful so you can see some of my videos about, say, Samson or Solomon. Um, but the Odyssey could be your Bible. I mean, the Odyssey is one of my favorite. I think if you read the Odyssey every couple of years, you'll find it speaks to you in a totally different way at the different stages of life that you're at. Um, I think the Odyssey is incredible. Also, the myths of ancient India, like Mahabharata, mm which contains the Bhagavad Gita is a, a enormously long. 
it's magnificent. There are podcasts of Mahabharata that you can listen to. There are movie dramatizations of it. Like in India, it is very well known. It's like how in the 50s, Hollywood had these movies of sword and uh, sandal adventures of like Jason and the Argonauts or um, Sinbad. You know, remember those classic Harryhausen movies? Well, in India, they have dramatizations of Mahabharata, but Mm. you can also find adaptations like modern translations of Mahabharata. It's fantastic. Uh, um, You can find the full thing online at sacred texts. Um, You can find the whole Ganguly translation, which is it's 7.2 times longer than the Iliad and the Odyssey combined. (laughs) It's enormous, but it's full of, if you, can start to understand the myths in the language that they're speaking, I think their lessons are much easier to grasp when you understand that they're speaking this celestial language. So cool. Man, this stuff is great. I'm going to have to hit you up for some some recommendations on <laughs> where to start with all that because I, I want to, I mean, like the Odyssey, you know, that sounds awesome. Is there, like, do you find that specific... I would imagine there's many different translations of some of these myths. Yeah, I like the Robert Fagel's translation okay. a lot. It didn't come out until the 90s, so when I was growing up, I really liked the Fitzgerald translation of the Odyssey, but um, there's lots of translations of the Odyssey. In fact, some really good ones are literal translations from like the 1800s where they're almost basically giving it to you word for word and it doesn't flow the way our English syntax would normally flow, but sure. you can really get close to the text that way or unless you want to take the time to study ancient Greek, which is (laughs) I've heard incredibly difficult, but the Fagel's translation is fantastic. I, I love the Fagel's translation. That's the one I was, I was holding up. This is the, uh, can you see me? Yes. Yeah. Probably the light has gotten, it's gotten dark here. No, that Um, works. That's the Fagel's translation of the Odyssey. I like that one a lot, but the, the myths can be bizarre and off putting and, unless you understand that they're based on celestial metaphor because there's weird, violent, just almost gruesome stuff in the myths. Yep. There, but when you start to understand that they're speaking a celestial metaphor, so in my book, I'll share the screen real quick. Where's my share screen? Can you see my screen again? Yep. Okay. Where to put it? So right here, in Star Myths of the World, Volume 2, I have chapters where I go through the Iliad. Chapter, I've got three chapters on the Iliad and six chapters on the Odyssey, where I show that the Odyssey is following this cycle of the year, the cycle of the, the lower half of the year. And Odysseus is, is like in the spin cycle. He keeps getting recycled over and over and over until he finally ascends up the Milky Way. So it has to do with, I would argue, at least on one level, it's like the parts and then self. And the figure that represents self in these myths, and I talk about this in Myth and Trauma, my most recent book, is Ophiuchus, which is not part of the zodiac. There's 12 zodiac signs, 
Ophiuchus is sometimes known as the 13th sign because it's part of the zodiac, but it's not part of the zodiac. And so in Mahabharata, there's this pattern of you have to be uh, exiled for 12 years, and then the 13th year, you have to be hidden. It's like Ophiuchus is the hidden zodiac sign. Well, guess what? That's like the self. It's not a part. Hmm. And so you can be stuck in the spin cycle, spinning like Odysseus along the zodiac until you recover yourself and rise up through that route. That's how you get out of the spin cycle. Spin cycle could be like repeating patterns, unconscious patterns of behavior. Well, you see it in the Odyssey. He keeps getting close to the end of his journey and then he gets blown all the way back to the start, basically. He's Mm -hmm. like in a washing machine, just spinning or is like when you're a surfer and you get hit by a big wave and you just spun like you're in a washing machine and then you pop up uh, and grab a gasp of air only to see another wave about to hit you boom, and then you're back in the spin cycle yeah. well that's what Odysseus that's what this life is this life Poseidon is his big um, adversary because we're trapped in the realm of the lower realm of water of uh, did I unshare um, not quite yet. Okay, here we go. There we go. Yep. So, in Star Mist of the World, Volume 2, I go through that for the Odyssey. And also for the Iliad. The Iliad has to do with the twins, the pattern of the twins. Achilles is like the higher self, but he's withdrawn from the battle. <laughs> he's, he's pouting in his tent, just like Arjun in the Bhagavad Gita wants to withdraw from the battle. It's... Um, it's or Gilgamesh. You could use the Gilgamesh uh, epic to, to any one of these could basically be if you study them deeply enough and really get to what they're saying. They can be like your Bible. They can be how you get in touch with who you really are. Wow! If that if if that makes sense, they they're Definitely. all pointing back to self. So you don't need to go. You don't need to go learn all the myths of the world. You just need to pick one that really speaks to you and get close to it and soak in it. And if you can understand it um, in this language of the stars, I am convinced you'll hear its message even better. So cool. That's awesome. So what are, are you working on another book right now, or what have you been up to lately as far as this work? Yeah, <laughs> I've been surf- surfing a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Yeah. I, what I really want to do is create a course because these books are like five awesome. pages each or 600 pages each. Like the Star Myths of the Bible is 766 pages. Uh, Ancient Worldwide System is 912 pages. And um, the sad fact of our modern condition is it's just hard to sit down and curl up with a book and go through <laughs> 912 pages anymore. So um, I think creating courses will be a good idea. I'm trying to do that in a good way here. I actually had somebody, I had a professional (laughs) that was going to help me do it. And then because of this whole lockdown, he had to basically do another job because Mm. all his other filming that was for wineries and stuff in the area was, um, basically put on hold for a while. So, um, so I'm adjusting, but the, uh, uh, putting together some courses to really help people understand this in in 
you know, videos instead of in books or, or in addition to books. Yeah. I mean, people can just go, go buy the books. I mean, it's all, it's, I'm not the guru. You, the books will help point you to the myths and then it's you, only you can get in touch with yourself. Yeah. But if I can help do that better in a, uh, if some people will respond better to a video series, then I'm going to try and put something like that together. That sounds super cool. You'll definitely have to keep me posted on that because I would love to check something like that out. And But yeah, I'll have links to your website and your books and stuff in the show notes. Um, and there's tons of stuff on your website. Like you mentioned, tons of blogs. There's tons of videos. I know you've been on other podcasts. Um, yeah, it's just great stuff, man. Like, thanks so much for coming on. It's been awesome to talk to you. I know we could sit and talk about this stuff forever because... I love it. So, well, thanks so much for inviting me on. I, I didn't, I didn't give you much chance to, to really. Uh, I I talked a lot, but uh, no, that's perfect. I really appreciate you having me on. Um, I try and maybe bring out some different things each time, so that it, so that it's not a repeat. Um, but I really appreciate getting a chance to interact with you. Maybe we can do it again, and I'll just answer your questions <laughs> instead of uh, instead of just talking. But I really uh, appreciate that what you're doing i wish you the best with your art and your music and your podcast and your long minnesota winters up there (laughs) (laughs) i appreciate that a lot man yeah i i love that you filled up the time with talking because honestly the podcast isn't really about me i'm happy to share my thoughts and, and feelings when it's appropriate and hopefully i have something of value to add but for the most part i just want to find people that I'm finding that I think are really interesting and fascinating and have something that I've found valuable and share that with other people that may not know about that yet, you know? So that's kind of my goal with all of this is to just kind of like, I feel like I'm a curator in my life of different people that I'm like, oh, this is awesome. And this is awesome. And it all kind of seems to connect in some way. So just put it out there for other people to try to, to find it like how I've found all these things through podcasts and stuff. So yeah, no, it's really important. I mean, uh, you you heard about me through a podcast. Podcasts are, you know, I'm doing this research. I want it to get to the people who want to hear it, people who don't want to hear it. You know, some people, I'm not trying to step on anyone's belief system, but some people are really hungry for this. Yeah. So I really appreciate uh, your having me on to share with uh, others, and hopefully this will be positive. To people, to, I always say, take the positive parts. If there's something I say that's negative, just you know, uh, leave that aside and, yeah. and, and take the positive. And uh, hopefully, something in here will be helpful to others. And I uh, really appreciate the chance to to talk with you, Jacob. It's good to meet you. Yeah, definitely. We'll definitely have to do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again.